Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we start today's show, sportsbreaks.com are offering a once-in-a-lifetime cricket experience, supplying packages to Barbados for England's upcoming test tour of the Caribbean. Sportsbreaks.com are offering personalised ticket, travel and hotel packages around the Barbados test match from the 16th to the 20th of March. To book your package or find out more, head to sportsbreak.com. We'll leave a link to that in the description for this show. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. I'm Yazran and with me this afternoon is the Wisdom Cricket Monthly Editor-in-Chief, Phil Walker, and the Features Editor of Wisdom.com, Tar Hashim. Um, Phil, let's let's start with your moment of the week. Blimey, that came quick. Uh, my moment of the week took, or began, at about quarter past five on Sunday morning and finished about half past seven on Sunday morning. So it's quite an extended one. This is definitely about cricket. This is about cricket, very much so. Cricket and cricket only. Uh, and it began when I was in a taxi um, uh, with my wife and um, she was sound out and I was checking my phone and seeing that something remarkable was happening uh, down in Canberra. Uh, Adagio for spring for strings was playing over the, over, over the, um, the, the taxi driver's Stereo. Now you won't know that piece of music, but anyone who's seen Platoon will know because it's it appears right at the end when Willem Dafoe is being murdered and, and shot down. Um, and it felt suitably grave and powerful and somber, and, uh, and there was a sense that there was something quite quite powerful and, and significant taking place. Rushed home, got in, got the iPad on, and then uh, watched uh, one of the most gripping hour and a half's cricket I think I've I've seen in a long long time um and I mean we know what's happened now you know England fell a handful short and Kate Cross blocked out the last over England were nine down at one point looked like it was in the bag Sophia Dunkley was playing beautifully and imaginatively and kind of impudently as well and it looked like 
England had somehow managed to pull off this run chase and then the pressure told a little bit and Meg Lanning got her fields right. Uh, and she was far too passive for much of that hour and a half. But finally, in that last session, she began to, to squeeze on England a little bit, a couple of inauspicious shots. And then, as we know, it came down to those last few moments and England kind of hung on. But then there was this overriding feeling that there was a huge opportunity missed there. And of course, now England have to go and win three in a row in order to reclaim the Ashes. Um, I think it's 6-4 in the multi-format series at the moment. And the Aussies don't lose many ODIs as well. And the Aussies don't really lose too many ODIs. Um, however, we did sit around the table here last week and say that it was it was going to be a tough, tough run for for England after the two rainouts and the defeat in the, in the T20 series. Um, so to come out and play... Gripping cricket, gripping cricket over three and a bit days, bear in mind that they lost the best part of a whole day, day three in a four-day test. Um, it's been a topic that rightly has been um, a hot one regarding how many days women's cricket is, is, is given, is deigned to be allowed to play. And it's obviously ludicrous that they can't play five days, especially with, with weather around. However, in spite of all of that, they still turned up in a, an extraordinary cricket match. Um, uh, I've never been more gripped with with a with a women's test match, um, and I don't think anybody else has either. I think it's acknowledged now as, as probably the, the finest women's test match of all, and it's a culmination of of this the strides that's been made in the game over the last few years. Um, a word for Heather Knight, who dropped Meg Lanning on the first morning as well, just before lunch, and that would have eaten away at her for the rest of the day. Um, so she went out there and at 168 not out and then was cruising on 48 as well in that second innings. And if she'd hung around just for another half an hour, then they'd have won that game. Um, such is the nature of cricket. You get to the end of a game like that. And as you try, try and process it and you've played one of the all-time great test match knocks, regardless of gender, regardless of four days or five, that 168 not out, which was the best part of 60% of England's runs, I think it was. No one else got more than 34. No one else got more than 34. Sophie Eccleston hung around with her at number 10, which changed the complexion of the match. And yet she'll still be walking away thinking, oh, if only I'd just hung around just that extra 20 minutes. Such is the brutality of the game. Uh, yeah, so look, genuinely... This is not hyperbole, genuinely. A, we've been due a gripping Ashes test match. And we got one. Um, and Catherine Brunt, probably the, you know, the, the, the soulful star of English cricket as well. You know, she is a phenomenon. Eight wickets, uh, five in the first, three in the second. Some juicy comments beforehand. Um, as soon as she does hang up her boots, which will probably be in about 20, 25 years from now, um, she'll make a fabulous commentator uh, because she knows the game. She calls it straight. She goes straight through the bullshit, straight to the point. And it was a joy to see her and Heather as the two real titans of English female cricket really pull it off. Yeah, I'll just run through what Brunt said before the game because it was quite interesting. Um, she said, I love I love test cricket. I just wish they'd tinker with it. I'm absolutely sick to death of us not evolving cricket in the way it should as a sport. We need to get on with making things more exciting, more challenging. The totals have gone up and up and up. The wickets have gone down, down, down. We shouldn't be playing on the same length pitches as men. This right. should not be happening. We should not be playing off 22 yards. It's wrong. Um, if you wanted to play over four days and give us a better pitch to bowl on, give us a Duke's ball to make things happen. Because honestly, it bores me 
Um, so I don't know how anyone else can watch it. And then a couple of days into the test match, she says it's a fresh, fresh air to have something to get excited about and be have a pitch to be happy to run in on. Um, and the pitch was brilliant because I think what, one one quality in, in a great test match is so much happens, you almost forget uh, some of the amazing things that happened previously in it. So you have that amazing finish on day four. But for England to get in a position where they should have won the game was was kind of crazy. To, to score 250-odd in 40, 45 overs is, is pretty incredible for so many of their batters come out and hit the ball so cleanly. Beaumont, Skiver, Knight, and then Dunkley was striking at 200 at one point. But, but So the interesting thing I found about that whole final day and that chase was... Um, so I spoke to uh, Claire Taylor yesterday, um, you know, one of England's great batters, uh, and we were talking about something else, but we obviously touched on the on the test match that happened as well. And, and the point that she made that was was quite interesting is that England were at their best when they had a set target of 257 from 48 overs. That you know they knew what to do. Uh, it was basically like a one day game, and that's what's kind of fascinating about the structure of women's cricket is that we need more women's test matches, but these are all players that are basically one day players. This is what they do. This is all they kind of do, right? And then they come in. Whereas you look at a, an England men's test side where you do have guys who really only are first class players. You know, they don't really, they don't play one day cricket at the international level. Then they don't play at that top level. So that's all they kind of do. These, these women's players, they're one day players and then they come in and play the test match. And so this is almost kind of their more, more natural element. And but convert, but almost paradoxically, but it it makes sense that the test game is now more of a legitimate option as a consequence of the strides that have been made in white ball cricket. And so somebody like Sophia Dunkley goes out there, and she has a fundamentally sound technique, but she also has the imagination and crucially, uh, the guts and the you know the big match temperament to be able to play those kinds of shots. And so you're seeing now the fruits of uh, improvements made in white ball cricket that can now be bled into red ball cricket. The problem that, say, uh, test cricket had uh, women's test cricket had a few years back with that infamously awkward test match in Canterbury, an Ashes test, where something like 35 maidens were played out in, in one day. And it felt like because of the prestige that comes with a test match, that the, the players went into their shells because they thought this is how you play test cricket, that it has to be attritional and it has to be, you know, protecting what you have at all costs. And then the game ended up sucking itself into a vortex and didn't go anywhere. And this has been a problem, an issue regarding the so-called product for quite a few years. But what we saw in this test match and what we saw as well with England, India as well last summer was the fruits of white ball cricket bleeding into the, to, to the red ball stuff and making it more watchable. And that's why, in a way, when we're we're talking about wanting to have more women's test cricket, is also the fact that you're probably going to get, you know, actually a more adventurous product than you might do with men's test cricket, because they are they're all coming in from that. They're all taking to basically get in the test side. You have to perform in one day cricket. It's a different thing, right? You're not having to perform in domestic rebel cricket because that's not a thing. So you have to show that you can play the shots. And so if you bring that in to the red ball game you know, you're going to get a game like that, which is just so, you know, yeah. it's quite exhilarating, really. Yeah, what I would say, though, is that that pitch was brilliant and right. there, there is so much onus on... Uh, I mean, I mean, look, look at what Brunt said before the game. There's so much onus on pitches being good 
the pitches we had in England for Test cricket recently have, have not been good enough. I mean, the the one well, against playing India, on used pitches. They literally yeah. played on a used pitch. Uh, and this one had real zip, real pace. You got value for money both as a batter and as a bowler. Um, that That is obviously crucial, but that's not been prioritised enough within English cricket, at least, when we've hosted test matches in the recent past. I mean, it's been reported that England are going to host another one uh, against, South Africa. against South Africa in 2022, which will be eight years after South Africa last played a test, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, just going back on the, the very end of the game, do you think, given the state of the series and what England had done to get in that position. They would, they would, have, lose, they would have lost it if they'd kept going yeah. right to the end, yeah. Yeah. The, from memory, it was half seven in the morning, but the, in that last half an hour, the, the tone of it had shifted so much in Australia's favour. Um, and I think, I think if England had continued to, to hit, and they, they were, what, 10 or 11 shy. If they were four or five shy, then possibly, possibly... Uh, but I think I think the odds were massively stacked against them by that point. But you've also got to bear in mind they only stopped at that point as well. Yeah. It was only really when Cross, as the number eleven, came out that they sh- that they shut up shop. And before that, they were still still going for it. I don't think there can be too many criticisms in that final final moment, really. But the, I, from what I saw, I felt like the problem was kind of there was no in between. They were going they were going T twenty mode, and then they went test mode. Uh, test mode, you know. Yeah, I, I think. And part of that has got to do with experience of playing in that right, situation. Exactly, I mean, that yeah, is a situation exactly. that none of them would have encountered before. Exactly. And the pressure of the occasion would have been immense and far grander than any other experience apart from the 27 World Cup final. I mean, this, this, that was what was at stake. And Sophia Dunkley, who's, who's a dream to watch, but when Heather went, she became the main, the main player. And she chanced her arm with a, an element of fantasy initially consecutive sixes I think first time ever that's been done in a women's test match and she was on 40 odd from no more than 30 balls, yeah. 25 30 yeah. balls and then as we've seen millions of times in run chases in first class cricket or in red ball cricket you see the as it hoves into view then it becomes all that more challenging and all that more um, untouchable and I think that possibly happened a little bit with, with, with England in that run chase it all hinged on Heather getting out really um and and then when it was over to Dunkley, she was caught um, at, at long on. And again, you know, she clothed it a bit. If she'd maybe just got a bit more on it, slightly to the right hand of long on, then it, again, they'd have probably gone ahead and won it. I think in the final analysis, I don't think that truly matters. For sure, it would have been phenomenal for English cricket to have won that game. But the achievement in itself was to have just put that show on. Yeah, have you seen the quite entertaining um, Kate, Kate Cross speaking on the Nobles podcast? The, the one that she does dialogue with her yeah. and Eppleston. Yeah, so yeah. just before Cross goes out to bat, she asked England coach Lisa Kitely, what am I doing? And then Kitely said, save it, mate. So Cross goes in knowing exactly what the coach wants. Cross goes in and says, hi, mate, you're all right. Eccleston says, what's the message? Cross says, we have, we have to save it. Eccleston says, save it. And Cross says, yes, so let's save the test match. Eccleston then says, save it. Cross says, Sophie, we don't get out. We absolutely do not get out. Um, we had a question in from a listener last week. Nick asked, should England be pushing for men's series to be played on the, in the same format as the women's in that you have multi-format series? What's what's quite interesting with the women's multi-format is you're still kind of getting the same personnel. And so there's still that sort of fluidity to it. It's like there's a continuity to it. W- with the men's one, because 
you know, say, for example, the England squad, it's so different. The test one is so different with the white ball one. You don't have that sense of continuity. You're, not, you're seeing sort of a completely different group of faces, which I feel would kind of hurt the kind of idea of it being a series, right? It just, it would feel, it'd still feel like a completely different thing. It's always like a, like you're sort of passing on the baton, like it's a relay race, That's true. you know? I would pay good money to watch an England West Indies T20 series using the test specialists. So, for example, Dom Zibley on one side, Craig Brathwaite on the other. That'd be good, that'd be good viewing. Um, uh, Phil, you got, you got a view on multi-format series? Uh, Obviously, it was tried in men's cricket for a little bit. The, the super series, I think they were called. Was it five or six years ago when Strauss was the director of cricket? Didn't really take off. No, I think Taha's rationale is pretty sound. Um, there's, I just don't see that there's a particular need for it. It may elevate my own personal interest in the white ball stuff. You know, I might keep slightly more of an eye on it, but realistically, having gone round the block a hundred times with England with England's cricket team, I don't see a three-one reversal against team against West Indies say in the T20s having any bearing on my own personal relationship with a two-nil win in the Test series that follows. Uh, I see them as very distinct and very separate entities, really, and um, one does not positively impinge on the other personally um, so I don't really see that there's a particular need for it uh, and as Taha says there's a there's a perfect continuity element to it in in the female game mm-hmm. um, just a bit of news related to the women's game for next summer uh, the ECB have cut the women's hundred slightly shorter than it was in 2021 basically to accommodate a clash with the Commonwealth Games that's taking place next summer uh, the ODI leg of the series starts on Thursday um, so from Australia to Barbados um, West Indies sealed a pretty impressive series win over England in the T20Is given how their T20 World Cup campaign went and that there were a few, few lesser known players in that West Indies team that was a really encouraging win for the West Indies yeah definitely and they obviously you know lost an ODI series to Ireland just a few weeks ago so kind of felt like West Indies were sort of a low ebb. Uh, and then, you know, when England show up in the Caribbean, West Sydney show up as well, don't, don't they? Uh, and yeah, it was quite quite an entertaining series. I, I mean, I'll be honest, sometimes when it comes to a bilateral T20i series, I'm, you know, I find it hard to sort of get up for it. Um, but, you know, I watched those last two T20s um, and, you know, to have it 2-2, you know, evenly poised um, for that fifth one. It was, you know, it was actually pretty entertaining. And a lot of, you know, decent young West Indies players, or West Indies players that I, you know, hadn't seen much of that I got to kind of learn more about. Odin Smith, really impressive. Um, Akio Hussain, who bowled quite well in the World Cup as well, looks a really, really talented left arm spinner. Uh, saw Kyle Mayer's bat at the top of top of the order. It was really Who good. was superb, wasn't he? In the yeah. fourth game, 40-odd from not Although many, many balls. Both of those games, he just came in for those last two, I think, uh, and was just kind of, kind of just what West Indies needed at the top. Because um, King was kind of, kind of more of a, anchor type opener or Mayers is just far more explosive and and the the highlight really was Holder um I, you know when he was when West Indies announced their World Cup squad he, and he was one of the reserves you know having kind of been a regular in the IPL and played quite well with Sunrise's Hyderabad I was quite shocked by that uh, and he's just his quality he was by far the best fast bowler in the series because it was not a really good series fast bowling. I mean, England really struggled. In the West Indies, the other quicks, their numbers don't look great, but Holder was, what, 15 wickets at like 9.6. Got some swing with the new ball. Very much holds his own at the death. I mean, he finished with four wickets and 
four balls to, well, to end the series. Moeen did stick him for 24 in four balls in the fourth game. Yeah, but they? apart from that, yeah. apart from <laughs> and you were saying is that one of the one of the one of the greatest ever four shot sequences played by batter. genuine case to be made that that is the greatest quartet of cricket shots, uh, consecutive cricket shots you've ever seen. You know, Yuvraj can can make a case, and there's remarkable sort of aesthetic similarities between the two, especially that one off off his toes that went over square leg for six. Um, and then of course Moeen followed it up with a fifth six in the following over, which is which will be memed. To the, within an inch of its life when he's checked a low full toss computer style over over extra cover and held the pose um he was majestic mowing completely in that innings um it it reminded me it reminded me watching actually the fourth te- fourth game i didn't see too much of the fifth game um but the fourth game reminded me with a packed crowd and the players completely invested in it, it reminded me when i was in the west indies a few years back, I think it was 2009, and England had a three-test series and then a five-test ODI series. And I don't know if you remember it or not, but Flintoff was playing, and Flintoff was captain, I think, of that particular ODI side, um, and he took a hat-trick in the fifth game to win it 3-2 at St. Lucia. Um, And the test series had been this dirge, this funereal, miserable experience. Was that the 1-0? It was 1-0 West Indies, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was when England didn't declare early enough at Antigua, I think it was, and they got a load of grief for that. Um, it was the time of the test match that was cancelled um, due to the run-ups at the Viv Richards Stadium. Anyway, it was that tour. But the point is that the Red Bull stuff, which is obviously the, the flagship stuff in our heads, never got going. And the, the, the punters out there, as I say, I was there myself, they, they weren't particularly interested in it. And then the ODIs came round. And the place took, you know, came alive, and it's felt watching this the bits and bobs of the five set, the the five T twenties. It's it's felt similar to me that this is now where the soul of their cricket really does lie. And I'm not saying that they're indifferent to what will happen next month, but that's where I think the punters are really invested in it, and I think that's where the players are able to find proper full expression. And so the games felt like they mattered. They don't matter when, as much when you watch T20 cricket in England or ODI cricket in England. You feel like, okay, well, it's a nice event, fine, and it happens and then we all, all move on. Whereas I think in the West Indies, I think the, the, the priorities, the emphasis has shifted. It's changed around. And so the white ball stuff, which can sometimes feel like a bit of an afterthought in England, feels absolutely central to their culture in the West Indies. Did you, you talk about culture? I remember um, during during lockdown one, we did a we did a T Twenty specific podcast with Freddie Wild from Quickviz, and we're going. It was, the, it was called the greatest T Twenty, and we go through um, the greatest spin bowler, the greatest batter, etc. And T Twenty cricket, the greatest team. And we had we had Samuel Badry on um, for the episode about the greatest spinner. And he was talking about the culture in um, on some of the Caribbean islands of playing tape ball cricket, and that just suits T Twenty cricket so much more than it does Test. It just makes sense that we'll, there's that culture there of producing T Twenty players more. You know, players hitting the ball from ball one, mystery spinners, etc. Um, definitely worth mentioning. Robin Powell who scored that hundred in the third game. He's, he's played a bit of international cricket before, but that was his first, I guess serious contribution uh, on the big stage. Um, Do you still go and check their first-class records when, when these, these new names emerge? What, for T20 games or just in general? It, when, when a new name comes through, now I knew Rodman Powell from the CPL, yeah. I'd seen his name, but I had not, not really watched too much of him. And then he comes out and plays that, and so straight away I go and check out his first-class 
record, yeah. which is basically non, non-existent, but he averages 15 for what it's worth. <laughs> and I guess that's the point. It's not worth anything. It doesn't matter mm. anymore. But there's still that kind of, sort of learned instinct that I have. Are they, are they a, a fully-fledged player or are they, are, are they a, a yeah. talented and skillful hitter? You, you, you can kind of tell, I think, with some players and how they bat. You know, mm. like mm. Uh, you can be a brilliant T Twenty player and bat in a in a way that you think is quite transferable. It reminds me. We always do. We always try and guess with IPL players. Like, yeah. How, okay. Yeah. When, it, when it a reminds, new one comes in, it's like, oh, oh, what's their Red Bull record going to be like? It, um, it reminds me. Kyron Pollard hit 170 odd. I think it was um, when he was just coming through in a first class game, and Michael Holding got him to one side and said, "You know, you can be a proper player, like a you know a Test match player, grown up player, uh, or you can be a mercenary." You can be a legend or you can be a mercenary. See, Michael Holding said that. Yeah. And Kyron Pollard said to him, all right, well, I'll take my own my own choices. Thanks very much. <laughs> and then he gave an interview to WCM last year and he said, yeah, I was given the option of being a, a legend or a mercenary. Well, I'd like to think that I'm a legendary mercenary. <laughs> we talked about it a little bit on, on last week's show, but death bowling continues to be quite a big problem for England. Um, since the start of last year, England have the highest death over the economy rate of any country in uh, any full member nation. Um, and since the start of 2018, knowing the bowl has gone less than nine and over and low to have over 10 and over. Um, when, when that, when so many bowlers are struggling, When's Joffa death, fit? <laughs> that's a good question. Where, when, when you, when you have so many bowlers who are struggling to death, do you then start to wonder at England getting things tactically wrong, which is almost something you don't, ever want to kind of accuse the England white ball setup of, of, of doing being tactically not quite on it. That would be heresy, sir. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, look, let's be honest. Cards on the table, there are other people far more better qualified to discuss the, the, the minutiae of, of death, death bowling when it comes to England's T20 side than me. But it was interesting to read Harry Gurney a couple of days ago um, being slightly provocative and a bit punchy, but saying that Morgan's never really prioritised death bowling. And I guess when you do have a genius in your midst, in Joffre Archer, then that ties up 50% of the equation straight away. And Joffre's economy in the IPL is astonishing compared to the next best seamer. You know, you're talking the best part of a a run run and over better than the next best seamer. Yeah, but even with Archer, he is is better with a new ball. He is so much better than... But he does bowl two and two. Yeah. He always... Well... More often than not, he bowls two and two, unless he's going to bowl you out in the first six. He bowls two and two. Obviously, you know, Mills has a has overall a very good record. Um, well, what's interesting there is that he did he actually barely bowled at the death in the series. So I think he bowled the 16th over quite a few times. But in terms of the actual death, which we called the last four, four overs, I think he bowled seven balls across yeah. three matches. Which is, it, it, what's which the is explanation unusual. for that then? I, don't, I, I genuinely don't know. Don't know. I, I don't know. What, he, he's, he's more than any other England bowler. He is the death guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't really understand why. You but but the problem, I mean, I mean, there is obviously an understandable focus on the death. But in this series, it was kind of, it was across the whole whole innings. Even with mm. the new ball, there wasn't there wasn't much happening really. Uh, Topley bowled really well. I think he was kind of the standout quick really. Um, but even he, you know, he wasn't able to, have a new ball burst that led to a sort of flurry of wickets. It's also a damn tricky thing to do. <laughs> you know, none of these grounds are especially big. Yeah, I mean, that, that has a big part of it in this series. Yeah. Uh, and it should be said that West Indies quicks, you know, like I said, apart from Holder, mm. 
It's not. It wasn't. A, it just who, wasn't who a stand. Was stuck for for twenty four in four balls. Yeah, as well. it wasn't it, a, it, at the death. Yeah, it just wasn't a standout series for fast bowling. Yeah. Um, I guess Chris Jordan would have been, you know, the go-to man for a number of years, and his uh, efficiency in that role, if you look at the stats, is not quite as as stellar as it once was. That, say, that is I say, true. I say diplomatically. That, that is true, but also a lot of the guys that we have talked up on this show before came in, and you know, Sakima Mu did did worse than 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 Jordan. Uh, George Garton came in and did worse than Jordan. I mean, Jordan definitely did not have a good series of the board, had a pretty good series of the bat. But yeah, there are very few options coming through. I mean, I've, I found, I mentioned it last week, I found how well Topley did quite interesting because yeah. we see we see Topley play at the Oval quite a lot and in Red Bull cricket, for example, and he's a, just a totally different bowler. Uh, it, in Red Bull cricket, he kind of ambles in not particularly quickly, uh, bowls probably low 80s max, whereas in the T20, the series here, it was like charging in, got good pace. Um, and did okay at the death, um, so I guess he's an he's an option there. Um, so you want to talk about um, the, the batters that England used in the series? That there were a lot of first choice T Twenty batters missing, and there were good signs for most of the players that played, but no one really had like an excellent series. Yeah, they all kind of had the the one knock, right? So you know, Banton in that third T Twenty, um, you know, he made what seventy odd, uh, you know, his highest international score. So that was a really good sign. You know, Vince was kind of like getting in, looking the part, and then you know, never heard that before. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then he, you know, he got you know he got a half century in the in the final T Twenty. It kind of rammed home that the fact that there is there is truth in saying that there is a lot of depth to England's white ball bang, and these guys can come in and they don't look out of place. Mm. But there's still there's still tears to it. There's still a level of you know, uh, Butler, Bairstow, Milan, you know. It might be much maligned, but the, the you know the, the fact of the matter is that you know he averages more than four in T20s. He displays a level of consistency, um, and he can get you not just one score in the series. He can get you know when he's on, he can get you two, three scores in the series that that kind of define it. And so those guys are still on another level. The likes of Vince Banton, they have that ability. They can play. They can you know, but can they do it? kind of every game we, 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 you know, when you see Butler walk out in the last few years it's just a guarantee you know you just know that he's going to kind of get a score and so England kind of missed those guys it's very clear that there's still there's still a hierarchy there those guys are still you know the number ones and, and there for a reason Jason Raw had kind of a middling series but I thought he batted I mean he contributed to both of England's wins and kind of I thought he looked good Jason Roy the bits that I saw well, he would kind of struggle at the start of his innings, but he just knows how to catch up. He has that experience now. He kind of backs himself. Like he, he, he'll kind of struggle and hit a six and be kind of been like, you know, having a word with himself because he's just kind of struggled so far, but he can get the score now. He's kind of still... He stuck a couple in the road, didn't he? Yeah. At Kensington. Big, big, big hits. Um, I thought Phil Salt's 57 in the third game was, was pretty interesting. England don't have many candidates for... Yeah kind of batting at five, six, seven in T20 cricket that, other than the first choice guys. That might actually be sort of the most important innings for England from that series, I think, because they'll always have the situation where they have loads of these guys who can bat in the top order and do well. Um, but the middle order is always the hardest place to bat in T20. And every, every, everyone wants to bat in the top order because, you you know, it's, it's just, you have, you know, the quicks come on and you've got, you know, you've got the room to, start quickly and you know coming in the middle that is that is always going to be a tough job and Phil Salt has done that opening job well for Sussex he's done it in franchise cricket he's 
done it everywhere really um to come in the middle order and do that on your debut i thought that was quite a significant thing and then he kind of struggled in the next two but that, that yeah that happens that is the nature of that role and you kind of <laughs> have to like put those innings to a side and remember the remember the 50s ESPN Cricket Info's Matt Roller um, did a thing on Phil Salt and saying that it's possible that England are kind of replicating what Australia did with Matthew Wade so Matthew Wade someone who uh, has basically opened for the majority of his T20 career has a weakness against spin but if you actually bat him low enough down the order actually unlikely he's going to face that much spin it is still pretty rare for teams to be bold enough to hold their spinners to the very end of an inning so if salt bats as low as six or seven not four or five six or seven he's probably not actually going to face that much spin so it's quite a smart and you kind of yeah and i think you kind of have to do that with some players and because the nature of domestic cricket is your best players are always going to bat in the top order Mm. Um, the guys who are batting six or seven, they're not really going to be six or sevens in international cricket. unless Try you asking want. Sussex to bat Phil Salt at number seven. Exactly. It's, uh, well, Lancashire now, isn't it? Exactly, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's just not, it's not going to happen. Uh, so you kind of almost feel for those guys because they're like, you know, we'll let those other guys take on the top order role. Here's the, here's the actual difficult work. Um, One name that's not been mentioned is Laurie Evans. Yeah, we're going to come into him later in the show. Okay, fine. We'll do it later. No, no, let's just do it now. Let's do it now. Uh, man of the match in the in Man of the match BBL in the BBL final. final. Followed up a 30-odd and a 69, I think it was, with a match unbeaten match-winning innings for the Scorchers to win that um, interminable BBL campaign that went on for four or five years and finally concluded last week. Uh, but he really did come to the boil at just the right time um, and he finished those games. Uh, he is a player who bats at four or five. He is a player who, I think he's, like, what, 34, 33, 34 now. You know, he's been round the houses with, with in county cricket and he's probably playing his best white ball cricket now. Uh, proper story player, really, in domestic cricket. Um, and th- th- there, are, there, are, there are less persuasive options to take over from Morgan as and when Morgan calls it a day in that kind of, you know, gnarled old pro four, five, six sort of slot to get the game done than somebody like him. Yeah, I mean, his innings in the final was amazing. He came mm. in at 25 for four, they ended up posting 171 and they win easily. Yeah. Um, and I think I mentioned it on the show a few weeks ago, but Harry Brooker, I guess, is another player who bats in the middle order rather than at the very top of the order in T20 cricket. And he was one of the players of the Whitepool summer in 2021, but he's, actually, he's had a really bad winter playing franchise cricket. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting that England didn't really look at form that much. If you're picking up form, Brooke doesn't make the squad, isn't near it. Evans had a brilliant winter, plays in that similar kind of role to Brooke, but I guess Brooke at 22 is just seen as a long-term option. You can groom someone like that. Whereas Evans, yeah, I just checked, he's 34. He's basically the same I mean, age as Morgan. And then, you know, take into account that there's World Cup in Australia late this year. And yeah. him having done well on those pitches. Yeah. Uh, is quite a persuasive option. That's a good point. Before we move on, let's head to Butch, who's just back from Barbados. Um, but on, on the T20i series, which England player or players stood out for you as having enhanced their reputations, players who might be more likely to be involved in England's 2022 T20 World Cup campaign than you might have previously have thought? Um, I, I guess the standout one's probably Reese Topley. Out of, out of people who have you know, not been regularly involved, I would say that he is he's the standout. Um, every, you know, Tom Banton maybe maybe didn't quite do enough. Um, Sam Billings will will certainly be involved in the squad, you would imagine, but um, you know, unable to kind of to, to 
to elevate himself beyond being somebody that will would definitely be in the squad. Um, Phil sort sort of gave a few notices about what might be possible from him in the future, but I think that the 2022 World Cup will be too soon for him. So yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody really furthered their cause that much, to be honest with you. Um, and other than that, no. I mean, it, it's the it's the usual suspects, really. None of the guys who sat this one out will be concerned that their position is under fire, particularly. And just on West Indies, that was a pretty impressive result for them to beat England. Um, even though England weren't quite 100%, um, West Indies didn't have a great T20 World Cup. They just lost to Ireland in an ODI series not that long ago. Uh, they lost against Pakistan in a T20I series at the back end of 2021. A lot of big-name players aren't there at the moment. So for West Indies to pull something off like that is, is pretty impressive and bodes well for the year ahead. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you saw the, the post-match presentation I did with Kyron Pollard. It was, it was very emotional. He sang to me at one point. Um, <laughs> You know, I think I think that the job of captaining the West Indies is incredibly difficult. I think you underestimate that at your at your peril. Um, there's so much there's so much in the way of sort of politics and pressure from without, you know, from without the um, the squad itself um, and people who who perhaps should be trying to make their lives easier tend to make it more difficult. Um, and so it was a yeah, it was a huge relief. For um, for him and I, no doubt Phil Simmons and the rest of the coaching staff, uh, and and there were some terrific performances in there. I mean, most eye catching of all, well, the two I suppose is Rodman Powell's hundred, which was out of this world, um, and um, and Jason Holder just all round really with the ball. I mean, he's somebody that hasn't been a, a permanent fixture by any means in in West Indies T Twenty plans, um, and you know to come up with five five for four and four in a, in a final over bowling at the death. Um, and also just showing how potent he can be with the, with the new ball as well um, was a terrific series for him. Akil Hussain as well sort of served notice as the sort of cricketer that he that he is and can be and how um, how important he's going to be for the West Indies going forward. So, um, yeah, Carl Myers as well. He just sh- showed sort of brief glimpses of, of, you know, him and Evan Lewis at the top of the order would be an absolute nightmare to bowl, I should think. So, um you know, West Indies have got, uh, as 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 they always are, I suppose. It's difficult to, it's it's hard to hard to forget that, or it shouldn't be hard to forget just how dangerous a T20 side they are. And yes, they had a very very poor um, World Cup. They got the wrong end of conditions most more often than not in that in that World Cup. And we saw in the in the series against England just now, um, you know how important it was at Barbados in particular to to set totals. Um, you know, it was not. It was actually nice to start games at four o'clock in the afternoon and have it so that the, you know, so that the the evening and the and dew and thing didn't pay didn't make any effect on the game. Um, you still got the the beauty of day night cricket and the atmosphere with that, but you didn't have that, um, you know, that that massive difference between the conditions on one side and on the other. Um, so yeah, it was good. It was very very enjoyable. Moving back to the England Test side, it's been reported by a couple of outlets overnight in the UK that uh, Chris Ilwood is set to lose his job as the England head coach. And uh, um, one of the front runners to replace him is someone you know very well through Surrey in England, Alex Stewart, who uh, 
It's uh, these are only reports at the moment, but he is being reported as being the person who could take on the job on an interim basis, um, and also something that we've talked a lot about on the show over the last year or so. Um, apparently, Andrew Strauss has recommended that the the roles be split between Red Bull and White Bull. I think we all know your answer on the latter, um, but on Alex Stewart, people who don't maybe follow Surrey cricket that closely, what what could England be getting in in Stewart? Um, well, I mean, you'll get somebody that that commands an enormous amount of respect from from everybody, players um, uh, in particular, which is incredibly important. Um, you'll get somebody who, who dots every I and crosses every T. Um, you'll get somebody who, say, for example, if, if the rumours are correct and he takes over for the West Indies series or whatever, knows, knows the conditions down there and the type of cricket required down there um, as well as anybody. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, interim's interesting because you know I, I, I've spoken without it before, and we've we've sort of discussed this in jest um, as to how we would feel about taking that taking over that job. Um, and most of the time, his answers have come with the uh, the caveat that you know his, his wife Lynn is 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 ill. You know, she has. Um, she has health issues and that he, he wouldn't want to be away from her for the length of time that doing the England job requires. And so that, that always sort of put an end to the, end to the conversation, really. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know whether any of that stuff has changed. I haven't had the chance to speak to him um, since the rumours have, have come to light. So, um, you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be very interesting if he were to take over. I mean, I, I don't see Alex Stewart as a, t- a caretaker because if you want to come in and do a job, then you kind of, you know, for somebody like him, he would want it to be thorough from, from top to bottom. You know, somebody joked about players needing to have their socks ironed and things like that, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, so again, I, I'm taking a little while to process the, process the news and I, I, shall have a, I shall have a word with him and find out what the, whether there is any likelihood in it. But if it, if it were to happen, um, you know, the, the issues around sort of test team and the players and selection and all these, these types of things don't go away by changing, by, by bringing in one person. But what, what could happen if he was to do it for slightly longer than interim is to start, sort out some of the processes behind all of that stuff. And also, you know, he, Alec is very, very strong on the type of cricket that he thinks should be played first class and the type of pitches that should be played on and all those things. And so if he were to do it on a, on, a, on a more permanent basis than that, then lots of things would have to change or he would have to have guarantees that things would be able to be, be allowed to change and he would be allowed to change them in order to want to take the thing on a more permanent basis. Uh, I guess one of the one of the accusations levelled at the England environment over the last year or so has been that at times coaches have been a bit too cosy towards the players and possibly not pushing them hard enough. Alex Stewart is a name that's obviously going to be very familiar to fans of English cricket. And although he's, he's been at Surrey in a coaching and director cricket capacity for a very long time, he would still be a, a relative outsider to the current England setup. He's not worked with them for, for, for quite a long time, if, if at all. No, he, he would be absolutely an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, so, so Chris Silverwood was a, as well, I guess, you know, before he was given the job. But I, I think with Alec, there is a, there is a certain, you know, there is a certain respect that, that players, even even the very young ones, um, w- would have for for a player, of, uh, for a man of his sort of pedigree um, and the, the history that he has with the game. So that, I, look, I don't know is the honest answer. 
Mm. Um, you know, he's been a he's been a director of cricket for Surrey County Cricket Club, um, which means being in the in the you know up in the offices sorting out signings and and sorting out um, you know parts of the parts of the running of the club that go unnoticed that are not directly involved with match days and all those types of things. And yes, he'll put a tracksuit on. And and if you looked as good as he as he does in a tracksuit at whatever age he is, fifty five or something now, then you would put a pair of shorts on and be out there as often as possible. Um, so look, it's there's a lot of speculation. Obviously, the whole thing's a rumor in the first place. Um, but you you would certainly bring a certain, uh, some gravitas, I suppose, to the role. But but whether or not that can translate itself into into performances remains to be seen. But. But if you're looking for somebody to be a safe pair of hands for, for a shortish period of time, they don't come much safer than that. To finish off, Butch, we had a question on off-stump guards you'll be thrilled to hear. Dan asks, um, the consensus from a lot of ex-pros, uh, including Butch, over the last year, uh, seems to be that bat- batting on off-stump uh, is, is quite a dangerous way to go. Marlis Labuschagne has recently, there's a video of him doing the rounds, basically explaining that when he bats in England, he finds batting on off-stump help because the ball moves moves around so much he feels more confident leaving balls outside off-stump what what would your response be to that well I watched there was a video a very very good video of him practicing actually um, on uh, on Twitter just very recently and regardless of where regardless of where his feet were his head never left off-stump right now one of the biggest issues for all these guys who are starting off virtually standing on with their legs in front of off stump and their head on off stump is the, first, is the minute they move, the head ends up outside the line of that, which is no good. I mean, you could start on legs, you could t- take a leg stump guard, but if the first thing you do is move your head a foot outside off stump, that's no good either. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, but Marnus didn't score any runs here last year either. So, <laughs> so you know, I mean, look, it's um, all that matters, I suppose, is whether or not you're whether or not you're making life easy enough for yourself to go out there and score some runs. And I would suggest that that is the that's the main currency. I would also suggest that look at your head position. Forget where your legs are. The game, you know, it's not French cricket. You're not standing there with your legs in front of all three. If your head position is able to maintain a maintain a steady um, a steady position, moving up and down on the line of off stump, then you're fine. Because you do exactly what the guy says. If you know your head is on the line of off stump, then there's anything outside it you can let go. But the players aren't doing that. If they were doing that, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Cheers for your time, Butch. Chat to you later. Um, now for some, for some news around the county game and the international game. Um, Tim Bresnan announced his retirement from the game this week at the age of 36. He's a two-time Ashes winner, three-time county championship winner, um, even at the Back end of last season, he put in a few extremely useful contributions for Warwickshire on their way to the title. I think he was left out for a game, did really well in the twos, came back and did really well for the first team. Um, I guess we can't talk about Tim Bresden without saying he was underrated and he bowled a heavy ball. Yeah, I mean, kind of the abiding memory is just the fact that I feel like he didn't lose a test match for like a really long time. Like he yeah. just came in and just won. Yeah, England he he, he won his first period. 11 test matches, I think it was. Right, okay. I think he's also got the the best record for an English bowler in Ashes Test matches this century as well. Um, right. Okay. Uh, and yeah, I, I remember watching some recently watching some highlights of the ten eleven Ashes and just almost being surprised at 
how good Tim Bresden was just as a bowler back then, because having watched a lot of him in county cricket the last few years, like he's was still very, very effective, but looked a million miles away from a test match bowler, like bowling at probably the mid seventies. But in that 2010, 11 ashes with, um, with Anderson and Tremlett, he was hitting high eighties, pr- pretty similar pace to what Tremlett was bowling in that series. I remember um, the outcry when he was picked for the Melbourne game. Really? Yeah. People going, what? Come on. <laughs> You know, sort of medium fast English English seamers not going to do much out. Yeah, blah blah blah. Yeah, and he took I think fourth or something like that in the first innings and yeah. basically iced that series for England. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, a likable cricketer in many ways, very very popular within the game. Um, uh, yeah, and you know the numbers really do speak for themselves as a, as a county cricketer. Um, yeah, wish him well. Mm. He also played what one of the great county championship. Uh, innings of the bat as well, and yeah. in, on the last day of that Lords game between Middlesex and York, last last game of the season, Middlesex and Yorkshire, I think he scored 150 odd, and Yorkshire needed to get to 350 to get enough bonus points for them to have enough of a chance to win the game. I think he got there with side bottom at the end, just got the last, but didn't win the game in the end. But um, yeah, showed what a versatile cricketer he was. Also worth saying as well that the very end of his career was marred by the allegations of bullying uh, and, and racist comments from Azim Rafiq. Um, Bresden apologised for any part he played in Azim Rafiq's experience of bullying, but denied ever making racist comments after Rafiq's testimony to the DCMS hearing alleged that he had done so. Uh, there was um, backlash in response to some comments made by the Middlesex chairman Mike O'Farrell this week. Uh, speaking to yet another DCMS hearing, O'Farrell said... The football and rugby world becomes much more attractive to the Afro-Caribbean community. In terms of the South Asian community, there is a moment where we're finding that they do not want to necessarily commit the same time that is necessary to go to the next step because they sometimes prefer to go into other educational fields and then cricket becomes secondary. O'Farrell was talking about how Middlesex has a more diverse academy system than their professional outfits. Um, there was, as I said, quite a lot of the backlash to those comments. Ebony Rainford Brent tweeted, honestly, these outdated views in the game are exactly why we're in this position. Unfortunately, the decision makers hold on to these myths. The black community only like football and Asian community only interested in education. Seriously, the, the game deserves better. O'Farrell then issued an apology saying, first and foremost, I wish to offer my wholehearted apologies for the misunderstanding that my comments made at this morning's DCMS Select Committee hearing have evidently caused. I wholly accept that this misunderstanding is entirely down to my own lack of clarity and context in the answers I have provided, and I am devastated that my comments have led to the conclusions some have made. For the purposes of clarification, I was aiming to make the point that as a game cricket has failed a generation of young cricketers in systematically failing to provide them with the same opportunities that other sports and and sectors so successfully provide. Um, Phil, what do you make of that whole episode? Uh, I think that apology was sincere. I think the fellow would have staggered away from it. And I saw the footage at the time and he was clearly flailing around and he didn't have the lived experience, uh, the understanding of the the, the nuances uh, of of the, the subject. Um, and he didn't have the vocabulary for it. Uh, I think that... That apology um, comes from absolutely the right place, uh, for what it's worth. Uh, Spectacularly tone deaf, um, but very much in keeping with much of what you hear from the game and from the the establishment wings of the game um, that, uh, as we know, for too long has has 
at best suppressed these difficult questions and, and at worst dismissed them. So I think what we what we have here is 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 a, a kind of a perfect storm, if you like, of of a of a chap whose name I didn't know. I have to say, who would be who is a successful businessman and who takes on a non paid role as chairman of Middlesex to to chair the meetings and to be there in his semi retirement, in effect. And suddenly he is thrust into a position that he is um, not cut out for not fit for purpose you know these are these are these are deep and s- complex socio-economic questions and it's about how it's about the fabric of society it's not about necessarily and certainly not exclusively about how a cricket club builds itself it's not really about that uh and he he, he came up massively short for sure um i also had a, a you know a kernel of sympathy for the bloke because this is a fellow who won't even have his own Twitter account, let alone be the subject of a of you know the, the standard mob piling that now happens. And and uh, Ebony's tweet was was bang on. I can't argue with any wording of that, you know. Um, and I can absolutely understand the frustration and the despair that she feels and others feel as well. Uh, what this story to me was was symptomatic of. <sighs> Of, of structures within the game that 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 are, that are yet nowhere near evolved and developed enough to to tackle the questions that the game needs to um and this fella O'Farrell uh is merely symptomatic of it mm. I guess despite the apology he, he did say those words and in in those words he's kind of it totally devoid of any agency that he has in that position this is this is yeah, also so not, not fit for purpose, not fit to be in that position of authority. So also the other thing, it's like, well, then what is the what is the onus you're taking? What is the what is the action you're going to take if you, if you think this is the problem? Then there is there's still sort of way out of it, and that there was no kind of elaboration on that answer um, afterwards. I yeah, guess the, the inability to 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 recognise that the game has been wrenched away from from urban areas, from working-class people, wrenched out of their lives. The inability to articulate that, I mean, that should be a, your baseline. That should be absolutely your first port call, your first thought when asked this question about why the game is no longer as representative of the, the various, you know, channels of English life as it once was. That is That should be your baseline. The fact that, it, it, that it's not um, feeds into a wider issue ar- around the game, you know, a, a wider... A wider sense of injustice, really, around the game. I guess we've almost got to like an awkward third act of the racism in English story that's that's taking place over the last few years. We had the emergence of allegations and kind of the reckoning that came with Rafiq's DCMS hearing the first time round. But now we've got we've almost got to the hardest bit, which is like, what do we actually do next? And I thought what O'Farrell said, I didn't think was particularly egregious, but it just kind of showed the problem that English cricket has in that the don't have the right people in place to engineer that change and I don't really know how that changes because I can't really see because someone in that position could be could have the best will in the world but it is just a lack of understanding I guess and I don't really know what you can do about that yeah look it's 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 being comfortable sitting in these kind of long-established socio-racial tropes Uh, and the only way that that established view that conventional position can be shaken up is with is with education and time and and years and the replacement of a certain 
generation a certain attitude and a certain kind of cultural attitude with a more evolved one and you can't just click your fingers and hope for the best you know and one of the irritating things about the dcms thing is what have you done how have you changed how have you changed i mean there's a mischievous part that would like to flip that question around sometimes but the the reality is that the game will change on the back on the on the on the will of individuals uh and it will take a long time it will take a long time and the game will have to take a hit. You know, it will take, it will take a, a funding hit. It will take a Sport England hit. It will take probably a sponsorship hit as well. But it, it has to in order to, to evolve itself in these, in these fundamental questions. How does it reach people that do not understand or feel welcome to a game that once belonged to them? That is the fundamental question. And that does not happen overnight. And it does not happen with the removal of a couple of you know, probably well-meaning, but completely out of their depth, old, old, old duffers who have been businessmen and made money and suddenly find themselves in a position of power and, and authority. It will, it will be a long time. Quiz question for you guys. Who are the leading run scorers and the leading wicket-taker, uh, respectively, in the South African first-class competition this winter? Simon Harmer. And Beddingham. Well done. There we go. Um, Bellingham, 509 runs at 63. Harmer, 35 wickets at 19. I think it's quite interesting because this week Harmer has been added to South Africa's squad for their upcoming tour of New Zealand, having not played a test match for many years. Um, and then Bellingham this week, speaking to the Cricket Fanatics magazine, um, was talking about the qualification period for him to play for England rather than South Africa. And uh, his, uh, his quotes in that interview weren't explicitly clear, but his agent has said, since said this week that he is missing the T20 competition in South Africa this winter to be in Durham so he can get the requisite number of days um, of residence in England f for qualification. So he qualifies at the moment at the end of 2024, which is quite interesting. Which would make him 28, I think, something like that. I think he was 25 when he... Really broke through last summer for Durham, right near the top of the averages. Was probably in pole position to break a thousand runs by the end of May. He didn't in the end, but he was certainly the main man initially. So he, clearly a proper player. So he'll player. actually be thirty. Be I think 30. so. It's the end okay. of twenty twenty four. Um, so he he qualifies to play domestic cricket as a local player through through um an, an ancestry visa. Um, so he's not an overseas for for Durham. Um, but that, that is quite interesting because he's scoring loads of runs in this African domestic competition. So you wonder if someone in South Africa is going to have a word. Yeah, we're looking at it from a position of being a cricket lover. Uh, and I don't have any, in, I'm not invested in Bettingham's story on a personal level. I don't know the bloke at all. You just wish that that conversation would be, have, would be, be taking place right here and now. Just like it's, I was really pleased to see Harmer's name in that test squad. Um, New Zealand, I think they're going to. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, as one or two spinners alongside Maharaj, um, I really want South Africa to 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 be strong. Um, I think international cricket needs a strong South Africa, and I think uh, his the itch that he can't scratch, Simon Harmer, is: Am I the best finger spinner in the world? Am I the best finger spinning off break right arm off break bowler in the world? Um, and now we get to find out. I would say over the next year or two, it's it's a really good thing for them. And it's a good thing for the bloke as well, I think, who, while dominating county cricket, couldn't quite shake that frustration. And it would come out in interviews and conversations and a couple of times when I've spoken to him in the past as well. Uh, you know, It's and not just dominate. It's to a level where it's like, 
like the guy needs you know, like you watch the guy and you're like this guy needs to play somewhere else he needs another challenge this is a bit much you know this is too yeah it's too easy also the thing we should mention is that he's still got maharaj in front of him who is someone who i feel like doesn't get the credit he's you know he's due he's well it was interesting in the three test series how ineffectual ashwin was overall when playing in in, in that series on those pitches um Harmer took 10 for um, with Elgar as captain in one of the domestic games. He you know, took seven in the first innings on day one. So so he's just class. Wherever you take him, he's class. Uh, and it becomes a, a really interesting addition for their side, I think. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pleased for him. And you know, the, the more international quality cricketers end, uh, go, getting back into international cricket, the better, obviously, for the game. Yeah, I guess it's almost a shame that where South Africa play, spin bowling doesn't come into a huge amount. And, sure. then, and then this New Zealand series is a big one. Again, not a place where you'd ever really play two spinners. Then they've got England uh, late in the year, rarely a place you play two spinners. So, yeah, but look. But then when when you do have the opportunity, you've got quite a handy partnership. Yeah. Maharaj <laughs> left arm spin taking it away. Then yeah. but, but I think we can end up reading a little bit too much into that. You know, off-break bowlers are not meant to take many wickets in English conditions and Harmer dominates everywhere he goes. And to the extent that teams who are hosting Essex change the whole components of their pitch to try and nullify the bloke. That's how good he is. Um, it's good for the international game that he's back in it. Mm, absolutely. Um, Moving on to the Under-19 World Cup. England are in the semi-finals for just the second time in the last eight Under-19 World Cups after uh, demolishing South Africa in the quarter-finals. Uh, the highlight by some distance was Jacob Bethel's 42-ball 88 in England's chase of 210. Um it was incredibly clean hitting. Uh, it, was a, it was a really good pitch and the bowling with the new ball wasn't great. But um, for an 18-year-old to, to hit the ball that well, that hard, quite a lot of the time, was uh, was incredibly impressive. He paid a fair bit for Warwickshire last season. He's been talked about for quite a long time. For they absolutely love him. Warwickshire yeah. absolutely love him. You know, he's going to break all records, apparently, this kid. Uh, and, and yeah, what, what you did see, it was interesting from a very conventional no nonsense, no bullshit kind of style. He stands upright, his head's still, and he just mullers it. Uh, there's a there's a kind of purity to his stroke play um, that was reassuring to see, I suppose, in a young player. You know, there's a really good echo in the ground, so there's a proper <laughs> gunshot sound every time he nailed one, which is really good. I felt sorry um, for that. Was it was it Thomas? Thomas, yeah, George Thomas. George Thomas, the the other lad who's again meant to be a good young player, but he was at the other end, just 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 shrinking. <laughs> In, into himself the more he was trying to swing himself off his feet and not connecting yeah. and then then bought Bethel at the other end just sort of strolling strolling away yeah I do wonder if we're about to enter a, a period of unprecedented England under 19 World Cup success if the Royal London Steady. one day one day cup uh has a, has a big role to play but in, in all seriousness I went in in 2020 not that many of the players who England took to that World Cup had played much professional cricket. But this time, most of them have. And like some of them, like Bethel, have played actually quite a lot of professional cricket. This is cricket. what the ECB were thinking when they, they <laughs> conceded the 100. It was the rule under what yeah. money. Um, Rahan Ahmed, who's only 17, he's, he's a leggy from Leicester. He took four in the quarterfinal. He absolutely rags it. He's got mm. a huge googly. Um, They'll coach that out of him. Don't yeah. worry about that. <laughs> Um, he's good to watch um, England play Afghanistan today who uh, qualified for their second semi-final in th- four years 
Um, and this time got us the final four after a brilliant game against Sri Lanka, winning that by just four runs after posting 134. It was kind of a game that kind of became a one-day test match where run rates were completely out the It was a marvellous game of cricket, this. Uh, it was brilliant. And then you had, at the end, the, the final wicket was a near exact replica of the run out that should have been at the end the of the Henry game. Exactly. Yeah. Except for this time we didn't, where, where, the, where the non-striker just runs, the striker doesn't run at all, miles out of his ground, but this time the bowler doesn't bottle it. Um, and and the, the opening bowler for Afghanistan as well, whose name escapes me, would have been England's second fastest bowler if he played in the Ashes after, after Mark Wood. <laughs> he, was, he was bowling consistently 85, 86. Wow. Um, yeah, look, and their great to see. Their production on a wrist spin is just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Like, he had three, he had, I think he had three wrist spinners who were all brilliant, and he kind of won after another. I was like, all right, you play one of them out, here's another one. Different type of wrist spin as well. Um, so, yeah, that, that, a lot of people are saying that England are favourites that game. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, given how good Afghanistan's recent record at under-19 level is. Um, also from that World Cup, we've got to mention Jewald Brevis. I hope I pronounced that right. This African who's lit up the tournament. He's dubbed the baby AB um, and he scored about 100 more runs than anyone else in the competition. Uh, he looks seriously, seriously good. Uh, on, on to the PSL. There there are about 300 English players in the Pakistan Super League at the moment. Uh, I, th- I think it's widely regarded as the, the second best T20 league in the world after the IPL at the moment. Um, from an English point of view, Highlight so far has been Will Smead hitting 97 for the Quetta Gladiators. Um, he's not played a first-class game yet. Taha, you've been a Will Smead ultra from day one. I remember you picking him out. You picked him out as your moment of the week when well before people were talking about him. I think it was his first. All I think I think it was his first 50 um, in the blast. Oh, well, thanks that, for remembering that. That, 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 was, your, yeah. that was your moment of the week. Yeah. way Actually, back when. Okay, I kind of vaguely remember it was here at the Oval yeah. playing for Somerset quite well. Yeah, it's not like you to get too excited about anything. So <laughs> it's true, especially with cricket. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, we scored some runs. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I'll be honest, haven't seen much of it. Yeah, uh, but I did watch uh, the finish to a PSL game yesterday. Talk us through it. I'll talk you through that while we're talking about the death of death bowling in English cricket. David Willey was bowling the last over, uh, eight required for Coito. Um, granted Nassim Shah was in strike so uh, that was you know he managed to get a few dots in there uh, and then I think it was seven required off the last two and Nassim goes for a big swing uh, and the ball looks like he's actually going for six over square leg and uh, Tim David um, pulls off just one of those you know standard kind of juggling catches where you, you know you jump over the rope and you go back which is kind of commonplace but um, with the it was a, it was a high pressure moment because if if he doesn't get it, um, super over and, you know, maybe, you know, Coyter could have won it as well. On Smead doing well, uh, I feel like the PSL is is a really good kind of litmus test as, as to kind of where an English batter's ceiling could be. Very, very different conditions. Seriously good bowling attacks. Um, some very good English players have gone to PSLs in the past and not actually done that yeah, well. Yeah, like, I mean, talk about Smead, Banton is, you know, another Somerset guy who's gone there and he's he's struggled there mm. and he'd done I remember he'd done really well in the BBL in his first season went to the PSL mm. and struggled because it is a different ball game you've got those you know the, the <laughs> Pakistan you know the, the the quicks that come through even at a domestic level yeah. you know that's that's a whole different test and you hear it from a lot of these England guys you go into the PSL and they come back and they talk about the level mm. and it's right up there you know it's probably after the IPL it's probably the PSL in terms of in terms of the standard 
and the the, the domestic bowling is just really good. You, so you always exactly, feel like yeah. from the perspective of a batter, like it is, it's a real, real challenge. On the seam, he took a, he took a five for five for twenty the other day as well. And um, Phil, one of your favourites, Shah Masood, is a leading run scorer in the competition I after working that. with one of your favourites, Gary Kirsten at the Gary Kirsten Academy. Um, so so congratulations, <laughs> wow. I guess. Thanks, mate. It's all on me. <laughs> um, on another thing on the BBL that we we haven't quite mentioned in the penultimate knockout game, the Sixers. Um, needed uh, two off the last ball and they retired out one of their batters, Jordan Silk, who was slightly injured and they brought in someone who wasn't injured. Silk was at the non-striker's end. This this caused uproar in uncertain sections of the, of the internet. Do you guys have strong opinions, one way or the other, in this one? I'd already drifted um, <laughs> away from you completely by the time you finish your sentence. Have you ever seen that clip of Slavin Bilic where he's just like asked to sort of elaborate his, on his thoughts while being a pundit and he just says you know what I don't care <laughs> yeah more power to that yeah more, more times we need to respond to your questions with, yeah, with that I, <laughs> I can't summon the energy to get this from one is, side of a sentence to the other this is the first time uh, on this episode that I've I've really missed Ben being on the show because <laughs> yeah. if Ben was on the show we would have had a five minute yeah. answer um, with previous references to <laughs> past times has happened and also exactly what I was, I was thinking laws. cricket just not PSL. I thought okay. we'd done We're on the, the BBL now. We're on the BBL now. Sorry, the BBL, I meant yeah. BBL. Okay. Um, I was actually looking at uh, English players in the IPL auction and what they're going for, what they're up for, and just idly wondering who's going to get who's going to get the nod. I, this is taking place today and tomorrow. So Who, who's going to be who's going to be very rich then? Well, Mark Wood, two hundred lakh. I don't know what that amounts to in 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 sterling, but that's that's right up there. I can see him being picked up. Adil Rashid as well, he's up for the same base price as well. So I really, really hope that, that he can carry on his IPL experiment because obviously he's, he's a diamond of a cricketer. Um, Moeen and Butler, of course, have already been retained. So they're already in. Stokes, Root and Wokes have all pulled out of the auction, um, not put themselves in for it. Uh, Root for... Obvious reasons. Stokes for encouraging reasons, I would say. Um, it's good signs for England's very, very shaky, flaky Red Bull side that neither of them will be featuring. Um, but whatever happens, I think the big change from the ECB's perspective is that you're not going to be playing up until five minutes before that first test match if you want to be considered for that first test match. So whatever stint any of these players, any of these Red Bull also players that it would be a truncated time out in the IPL. Um, so that may obviously affect their uh, their price and their and, and how you know persuasive it is to 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 bring the likes of Bairstow and so on. And David Milan, who's also up there, David Milan's up there for 150 lakh and and Bairstow's in there as well. Um in fact, he's not in this list that I'm looking at, Bairstow, but yes he is. Also 150 lakh as well. I'm really to see how Wood does if he gets picked. If, if he gets picked, because he was so good in that T20 series in India at the start of 2021. And he didn't put himself forward for the IPL last year. And kind of, you, yeah. saw, you saw the immediate impact of Norkia yeah. in the IPL, who just yeah. kind of just started as a 93-mile-per-hour bowler. And when Wood played there before, he, that was kind of pre-St. Lucia Mark Wood, which is just a different person. Um, <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see how he goes this time around. Liam Livingston, 100 lakh, didn't really get going, did he, when he was with Rajasthan in that, um, the Dubai leg, if yeah, you like, yeah. of the IPL last year didn't really get going, but obviously, you know, he's a 
is a star in the making. So, and I guess it's different he's, now. He's, he's, now he's, also, his bowling yeah. since then yeah. has become a much you know more Le- a legit T20 yeah. all rounder, mm. Liam Livingston. So I imagine he'll probably be snapped up somewhere. Mm. Um, Jake Linter. 20 lakh, you never know. He's doing well in the BPL at the moment, generally, and there aren't very many left-arm spinners in the world. Did he so. open the batting with Chris Gale the other day? No, did he? That's my moment of the week. <laughs> Just check that, because so I he think hit, that actually happened. He hit yeah. um, like 40 off 20 in uh, a blast game after having done basically nothing with the bat in the blast before then. Um, that is that is sensational if he's opened the back with Chris Gale. I wonder who sets these base prices, whether it is the player, the player's yeah. agent. Jake Linton opened the batting with Chris Gale in like a proper Sunil Narine role. And he hit, he hit uh, 11 off six. That's job job well done. Get him in. Higher strike rate than, than Chris Gale. 20 lakhs, um, get him in. And then, yeah, took two for 19 in a low scoring game. So brilliant performance. Um, get him in. Craig Overton and Saki Bamu, both 200 lakhs. The same as Rashid Wood, Jason Roy, James Vince, um, and 50 more than Johnny Bairstow. You're kind of thinking that there's a bit of hubris at work if Craig Overton's. I kind of rate that going in a way, for more which is kind of like Bairstow. If I'm if I'm going to get picked, I want to get make a lot of money, and if right. I'm not, I'm I'm kind of fine with that. It takes um, me back to the Chris Wokes thing when I spoke to him on the Sunday night just before he went to bed, and the auction was going to be overnight, and he said, "Oh no, I'm not, not going to get anything." Yeah, it would just be nice, you know, just to be a part of it. And he woke up like nine hundred grand richer, <laughs> literally. I also like you don't quite you don't get it quite as often with the IPL, but for other competitions, you just get like Red Bull specialists putting them in, putting their names in the hat. Um, like Hassan Azad and Hasib Amid have put their names forward for uh, PSL auctions in in times gone by. Why not? Um, in uh, there's been a really really good ODI series between West Indies and South African women at the moment. So we're two games into the series. In the first game, Deandra Dotton hit 150 not out, but that wasn't enough for victory as rain just about prevented them getting enough overs of the South Africa run chase in. So South Africa were like 89 for four after 17.4 overs. So they needed oh. 14 more balls to get a result in. And then uh, the second game was brilliant. It was a tie that was eventually decided by a super over the West Indies won. So that is that has been a brilliant series so far. Um, and so, um, uh, elsewhere in the international game, we talked about Brendan Taylor last week. Um, he gave a preemptive statement um, about his uh, multi-year ban. We now know how long that will be. That will be three and a half years. Alex Marshall from the ICC, who Phil, you mentioned last week, said, it is disappointing that a player of his experience chose not to fulfil those obligations. However, he's accepted all charges, which has been reflected in the sanction. I would echo uh, Brenda's message to other players to report approaches as soon as they happen so any corrupt activity can be disrupted at the earliest possible opportunity. We wish Brendan well in his rehabilitation. Um, Marshall also referenced the number of times that Taylor, over the course of his career, would have would have had anti-corruption tutorials. I guess I think it was something like thirteen he would have gone through uh, during his time as a Zimbabwe player. There's a part of me that feels, on a personal level, on a human level, rather sorry for the bloke because he's clearly been wrestling all kinds of internal demons and so on. Um, but the the wider point is hard to quibble with, isn't it? Because if you are going to be rolled out in effect as a deterrent, as a, sca- not a scapegoat, because that is too harsh, but as an example of a zero tolerance policy that has to be in place for cricket, then then I'm afraid so be it. Um, and I don't know what he feels like in his private moments, but he certainly appears in his public statements to be aware of that. And that if you've let the game down, then you owe the game something. And his 
punishment, this penalty, this three and a half years is in a way uh, the, the, the quid pro quo, the consequences of, of his um, at best inaction in the first place. Um, and I think from his statements, it seems like he understands that. And look, it's a, it's a harsh statement. It's a harsh penalty, no doubt. And as we spoke before, compared to, say, Shakib's penalty, um, it feels especially harsh. Uh, but the, the bigger question has to be, has to be, what damage does this continually do to the game? Um, and how can we be uh, necessarily stringent in our policing of it? And so overall, I don't have an issue with it. Mm, absolutely. Um, and just to finish off, some county news from the last few days. Uh, Mohamed Abbas is back at hey. Hampshire for the 2022 season. Reminds me so much of you, the way you bowl. I've said this to you before. Don't you said it on the podcast, so I'm happy you said it now. Um, what, what, what about my yeah, there, bowling? There's a, there's a kind of daintiness in the run-up <laughs> that is very, very similar. I Hold, holding used to be called whispering death because you could never hear him coming in. You're kind of like whispering sleep or something. Um, whispering lie in, I don't know. But you, you're so smooth and dainty. Uh, you kind of glide across the turf in your run-up, and so does so does a bass. It's very, very and I also lots think of it's not much of a jump, <laughs> not much well. of a jump, not yeah. much of a gather in yeah. the action, um, and just that the murmur of shape. Yeah. I like how my only experience watching you bowl is while I was keeping <laughs> wicket to you bowling to a team of thirteen-year-olds that beat us. Excuse me, <laughs> uh, excuse me. Who was at first slip? We took an absolute screamer off Yaz in the second over. Who, can't, who was can't remember. No, sure. Um, Maybe the names just cats diving forward. Coach, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's um, good. It's good for, for good Hampshire. Hampshire. It's good for the county really game. Good for um, and some uh, coaching appointments as well. Richard Johnson is the new Middlesex coach, and Gareth Batty is the Surrey interim head coach for the 2022 season. Um, that is all from today's show. Um, cheers, Phil. Cheers, Tar. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. Uh, we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network.